Welcome to the week on ADH TV, the Reader's Digest edition of Seven Days of Robust Conversation on the Southern Hemisphere's most fastest growing alternative media channel. Uh, welcome. Fred Paul is, is co-presenting with me. I'm Nick Cater. Fred, I think I'm right in that. Aren't we? we are the fastest growing alternative channel in the Southern Hemisphere, unless there's something in Chile I've missed. When, or... when, when I was a kid growing up in Perth, I used to live next to the Karanup Shopping Centre and everyone in <laughs> Perth said it was a brand new shopping centre and everyone in Perth said it's the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. And my <laughs> mum used to laugh about it. All. She's like, well, what else is there? <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll claim that one. We'll go sure. with it until we'll somebody challenges it. it. Exactly. In fact, we might be the fastest growing media outlet in the world, Nick, because uh, ADH is growing very fast. We, we must we must admit at the top, Fred, we're winging this one because we this is the first edition of this uh, regular show. I mean, there's been, ADH has grown so quickly, there's been so much happening. We, we ju- only just realised that there's scope for really pulling it together for listeners at the end of the week. Hopefully, hopefully Indeed, yes. Our focus primarily in this podcast is going to be content, uh, the vast selection of content that we have on ADH and uh, picking the best out of it. Yeah, and occasionally the odd bit of content from other channels. Well, like we... your column in The Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that we can use to humiliate our rivals. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a bit of that, Indeed, I'm sure. yeah. Uh, lessons of the week. I, usually, be, this would something you do at the end, but I think we'll start with a lesson. I, yep. There's always a lesson in everything that happens yep. this week. Mine is, and Napoleon should have known this, by the way. Never <laughs> march on Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, what's it? What's his name again? Uh, the, uh, the unpronounceable. Uh, z- we'll we'll have to. We'll just uh, call him Mr. Wagner. Mr. Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a name you're familiar with. I've got to we won't, be careful. We with won't go into that. But uh, <laughs> but he actually marched on Moscow in summer. I mean. Uh you know, if you can't do it in summer, you really can't do it at all, can you? No, that's right. And he gave up after a couple of days, yeah, I see. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it had all the feelings of a hissy fit, really, didn't it? That he just yeah. got a bit hot-tempered and, you know, over a, over a beer on Friday night and by Sunday <laughs> afternoon he'd thought better of it. I mean, we've all been there. Right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, in his case, beers with vodka chasers. But Mark Stein had a, a, a guest on uh, during the week, Um during this podcast, we are going to make continual references to ADH content. And uh, as the listeners may well be aware, Mark Stein is one of our star content providers. And he had a fantastic guest on, a uh, Russian correspondent, who explained it very clearly and very simply. Uh, and you're right. It was a hissy fit. It was not an attempt uh, an attempt at a coup. Um, your man, Wagner, whatever, uh, <laughs> we should have been better prepared. But uh, the man from Wagner... Uh, was simply trying to change the leadership at the uh, at the top of the military and failed. He's now in Belarus and uh, in, enjoying uh, some of his last days of, of life on Earth. <laughs> I might <laughs> I might uh, hazard to guess. Yeah, and if you want the background on this whole story, uh, going back to its origins in the year two thousand five hundred BC or thereabouts, and Henry Ergas, <laughs> 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 uh, who I think has been around for much of that period, <laughs> uh, put a very good piece together in today's Australian. Yeah. Anyway, we move on to more serious things. So Fred. my lesson of the week is never sit next to Hunter Biden when he's texting someone in China. 
<laughs> you might wind up being referred to as the big guy and uh, who knows where it, mind you, I mean, uh, uh, it's not going to really get you in any serious trouble if you are a Biden. I mean, uh, all you have to do is mishandle some, uh, some uh, classified documents if your surname is Trump and you're in deep trouble. Yeah, but I just want to, sorry, I just want to digress on one other thing. One other highlight of the week for me was uh, a very historic moment. Um, John Ruddick of the Liberal Democrats, or officially known as the Libertarian Party these days, uh, made his maiden speech in the uh, Legislative Council in New South Wales. And it was quite an event, Nick. There was such a motley crew turned up to watch it. I our can old, imagine. Our old uh, colleague Tim James turned up, a federal member for the mm-hmm. Liberal Party. And uh, and right off the bat, <laughs> right off the bat, John absolutely launched into the Liberal Party because he was a member for decades and tried to reform it from within and uh, failed. And so wound up being a libertarian and uh, and is a very heartfelt libertarian. The whole speech was all about he wound up drifting into the concept of anarcho-capitalism, which is uh, not a phrase you hear very often in the... Uh, in a maiden speech. In the, or even in the hallowed halls of our parliaments at all. I take, it he, I I take say, it he wasn't advocating anarcho-capitalism. He was, he was. <laughs> and, and But I've got to tell you, he summarised it, he summarised it most poetically, one of the best, cutest phrases I've ever heard uh, to be entered into Hansard. He said, uh, as, a, as, as the spearhead of the libertarian movement in Australia, he said, we are... We are coming to take over so we can leave you alone. <laughs> I'm surprised. I thought, I th- you know, I, I thought we'd get more of John's normal restrained, uh, <laughs> understated. <laughs> oh, he came out he, swinging. He let fly, yeah, in he other let, words. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, controversy of the week was that uh, the maiden speech of, uh, the, the much-anticipated maiden speech of a man who's already prominent in Australian politics, even before he became a parliamentarian, uh, has been taken down off YouTube. Heroic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The speech has been taken down off YouTube. So the Spectator has since uh, posted the the entire text of it. And um, if uh, if our plans, I, I would I would hasten to add that we would uh, we will soon have it up on ADH as well. Fantastic. Any, yeah. look, anything they take down by a matter of principle, we should put up. Right? I don't <laughs> yes. care what it is. It could yes. be. You know, it could be your neighbour reading their shopping list. If it comes down off YouTube, it goes up on our... Let's Indeed. make that a, a yep. policy here. Yep. Uh, we'll tell the CEO that that is the policy <laughs> later. Uh, so what... what what else has been happening in the week? What what next? Hunter Biden, you mentioned. Hunter Biden's... Yeah, uh... yeah. Well, the other interesting thing about Hunter is that, I mean, you know, he has proved that the surname Biden is worth millions. You know, you can ring someone in China and say, where's my $5 million? The, uh, the big guy is sitting next to me. If I don't have it soon... Uh, you're in deep trouble. Now, the other thing that Biden, that Hunter has been up to lately has been ensuring that his illegitimate daughter does not get the Biden surname. That's part of the, uh, the deal that he made in that Delaware court. On one hand, he's reducing the amount of alimony. He, he's uh, he's um, transferring to the, uh, the stripper who he knocked up and um, got pregnant. Um, and also uh, legally insisting that the kid never gets called Biden. And the kid, he's never met the child. It's just, I mean, this is, I listened to, um, I think it was Michael Knowles on the Daily Wire this morning. He's utterly appalled. And and as as people should be, the, you know, the, the Biden's selling out 
you, the, the United States to foreign interests is one thing, but treating your own children like this, that's, that's a pretty, pretty uh, vivid look into the man's soul, I'd say. It's confirmation of the man's poor character. There's no, well, no there's doubt about that. <laughs> yes. but, but so do you think the way, you know, if I, if I was short of a bop or two, which of course I'm not on the wages we get here, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I could change my name to Biden by D-Poll. I could cultivate a Delaware accent. I'm not sure what a <laughs> Delaware accent is and just head off well, to Beijing and say yeah, I'm from the big guy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they've probably already got Beijing covered. You could probably try Jakarta or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Penang or... Adelaide. Ad- <laughs> 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 uh, okay, so let's go to our first clip of the week, which is Alan Jones came out... To, I, I, I say John Ruddick came out swinging in his speech. Alan Jones has been after... I shouldn't say after ICAC. Alan Jones has been a critic of ICAC, uh, which is the Independent Commission Against Corruption in New South Wales. There is one of these commissions in every state in in Australia, Nick. We've got six of them. And as of tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, we will have one federally as well. And these are extrajudicial bodies that have all sorts of abilities to destroy people's reputations. And there is no recourse for the, or almost no recourse, especially in the case of ICAC, for people whose reputations have been trashed and uh, on the flimsiest of evidence. So let's hear from Alan, who came out swinging on ADH last night. It was the Michael Baird government in which Gladys was treasurer. The past, the most scandalous piece of legislation, some say, in the history of New South Wales politics, the ICAC Validation Act. This followed the humiliating defeat of ICAC and, by inference, the government in the Canine Affair. The Validation Act now means that if ICAC wrongly determines a corrupt finding against an individual, the ICAC Validation Act stops that individual from using their democratic right to have the decision challenged in a New South Wales court of law. I repeatedly urged Baird and Berejiklian to change this. You can forget Perrottet. He didn't even understand it, but he was in the government. That's frightening. It is. I, I, um, I describe this as... I, I describe these, these uh, corruption commissions as a sort of reality TV for people who are into politics and corruption and scandal and so on, because that's all they do. They, you know, they, they put people in these, uh, these star chamber trials um, and the outcome is, is, is what? A bit of entertainment for the masses? Well, it's completely lacking due process, isn't it? We need to talk to Chris Merritt about this. But, I mean, the, the, the idea that you put somebody up Make these accusations in a in a sort of sh- showtime style, deliberately aimed at the six o'clock news, uh, and and then go away and deliberate on this and um, and and not make your findings for two and a half years is disgraceful. I mean, it's the sort of thing you'd expect in some two bit dictatorship, yeah. don't you? Yeah. This is this is not the way it's totally, we ha- yeah, handle. It's- accusations against people in this country. We, we put it to a court of law. The court deals with the due process. There's all sorts of things, of course. You know, there's a, there's a judge who will give a fair hearing to the accused, to their lawyers. There's standards of evidence that can be can and can't be introduced. It's, it's, exactly. And so, the, so Alan came out swinging, of course. I mean, the, the, the listeners will be aware. But this is all related to the finally, two and a half years later, the ICAC has released 
its report on Gladys Berejiklian. And uh, this is where you and I might part company, Nick. The, the report found that Gladys had engaged in serious corrupt conduct. They're the words that the commission used with her then boyfriend, Daryl Maguire, who is now about to be hauled over the coals. He is going to face, uh, well, charges have been recommended against him. But this is where it gets, uh, this is where it gets really infuriating for me is that ICAC is not recommending charges against Gladys. Now, that would infuriate Gladys as well because she's been called corrupt and she hasn't got it. Now she has no forum in which to clear her name. And as Alan just explained, there's there's no recourse for her at all, it would seem, which is incredibly unjust. But I, I would like to sort of speak from the perspective of just an ordinary person, like taxpayer, law-abiding taxpayer, you know, raising a family, running a business. The powers that be, the elitists have said, this woman's corrupt. All of Australia, all of uh, New South Wales politicians have come out saying, well, no, she's not. We're standing by her. Even Chris Minns, the Labor mm. Premier, is saying, well, no, she's, you know, she, uh, this, he said, this doesn't detract from Gladys's performance during COVID. Now, if you ask me and ask any ordinary resident of New South Wales, that's what we judge Gladys by, and Chris Minns might think that he that she performed excellent. His word was excellent during COVID. My my word, as someone who lived through it all, would be abysmal, because uh, you know we now know the vaccines were ineffective. Gladys famously said, "I wouldn't want to be in the same room as someone who's unvaccinated." Mm. We now know the vaccines were ineffective, and not only that, they kill people. And the lockdowns didn't work. And in fact, somewhere, somewhere around 60,000 or more fines were imposed on ordinary citizens for breaking those COVID regulations. 32,000 of them were cancelled because they were invalid. No, so, I th- I, yeah, I, I, look, I think we've got to be perfectly clinical and legalistic about this and separate that. And I don't know why Chris Minns brought it up. I don't know what it's got to do with the allegations before ICAC. And you and I would have uh, probably similar views on Gladys's hand- handling of COVID separated only by a matter of degree. I mean, I think that she was far from the worst uh, of, the, of the culprits at state government level. And, uh, uh, but, you know, I mean, just to be the, the least naughtiest child in the class is not good enough. Uh, so, you know, that's a separate thing. And I think she needs to be judged by that. And she's paid a heavy price uh, but through the, the the laziness and bungling of this kangaroo court, she's paid a heavy price and that smear will stay with her forever. And I, I agree. I mean, put up or shut up. If, if, if they've got enough evidence to charge her, then sure, call her, call her corrupt or very corrupt. If you haven't, just put it to one side. Because certainly on my reading of the evidence, um, she she's she's made a it was a big mistake not to tell the cabinet, not to be upfront about this. But when you look at the details of the transcripts of the conversations between her and Dirty Daryl, uh, she um, she's continually asking him, "Look, is there anything I need to worry about? Anything at all?" And uh, the, I, I think that she comes across. As I, as I know her as a person to be somebody who would be extraordinarily cautious about this, 
but in a very human way, um, mortifyingly embarrassed about sharing this relationship with her colleagues. And that's the bit that, it, yeah. Yeah, the, bit, the only bit that I find unbelievable is this idea that she'd fallen in love with this bag of suet, you know? Yeah, he's, he's not a, yeah, he, he's not, let, let's put it this way, he's not the most desirable uh, um, sort of uh, suitor in uh, in the um, no. New South Wales Parliament. And uh, at one stage, I mean, they're, some of their you know most private conversations were aired, and that and they're embarrassing too. I think the other way you can judge this whole th- imbroglio is is by the people who get get this kind of uh, Schadenfreude satisfaction out of uh, seeing people like Gladys suffer in this way. I mean, my my opinion of her is 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 low because of the way she um, she brought the hammer down during COVID, but. I agree with you, and I agree with Alan. ICAC is is a uh, is a rogue element in our justice system, and uh, she's been unfairly maligned. If and if, uh, and uh, any any if we, you know we're not we don't have time for this this show to do a sort of fair weighing up of the premiership of Gladys Bradley. But if we were, I'd say then we'd have to count everything that goes in her favour and. And motorways. I mean, she has, she has turned under Sydney into a honeycomb <laughs> of really has. good motorways. Right. She We're going to have. We have now the, the longest, the second longest, road tunnel in the world beneath Sydney, and they've is done that it. West Connects. Yeah, yeah, they've yeah, d- yeah. I think the bit longest is in Norway, wow. and they've done this without fuss, efficiently, on time. And they've opened these roads, and we think, wow. And that's no mean feat because on my show this week, uh, and we might even get Charles to play the grab if he doesn't mind doing it in post-production, but we, we, we talk, I talked to James Matthias from the Medicine Research Centre about comparison with Melbourne, where in 2014, Dan Andrews comes to power uh, looking at the, the, the Australia's largest overhead car park, the Westgate Bridge, and saying he's going to build a tunnel underneath, the, uh, going to be the Westgate Tunnel to clear this traffic jam for $500 million. Now, what are we? Nine years later, he still hasn't started work, but the price has gone up to $10.4 billion. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> so he can't build one road tunnel and we've got more road tunnels than we know what to do with. I think if I remember rightly, James also pointed out that there was a, that there had been $100 billion worth of uh, infrastructure projects initiated by the... Uh, Andrew's government, and 15% of it, in nine years, 15% of it had only been uh, completed. You can, listeners, you can find all of that on Nick Cater's Battleground if you go to our website and uh, just scroll through the um, the various shows. Nick Cater's Battleground, um, great weekly show, and uh, James Mathias, towards the end of that show, um, will tell you all you need to know about why Victoria is the highest taxing state in Australia and why everyone wants to get the hell out of there. Right, shall we move on, Nick? Yes, of course, of course. Let's get beyond Yes, Victoria. so I think uh, let's let's uh, grab this quote from David, Professor David Flint's show, Save, Save the Nation with David Flint, or as I like to call it, Save the Nation from David Flint. <laughs> um, uh, and this we is mean about, that with the greatest respect, <laughs> the greatest David, affection. If, you're, if you're listening. He's, uh, he's one of our, one of our <laughs> most beloved members of our team here. Um, So this is David talking to legal expert Chris Merritt about the voice to parliament. 
The, the Prime Minister, I think, by his, the way he is approaching this, the secretive way, the attempt to conceal what is going on, the way that the yes vote is, the yes case is being weighted. For example, we're seeing so-called information advertisements, which look very much to me like yes case advertisements. All of this is going on, and I don't think the Australian people are going to go along with this, and the opinion polls are showing that uh, this thing is going to be uh, very unlikely to pass. And if that happens, then we're going to be attacked. Uh, there's going to be a lot of division in the country. It's going to be received very badly. And if it goes down, we'll be looked on badly. If it goes up, then I think we're going to find that the country will be possibly ungovernable. It's a disaster, I think, what is being proposed. Well, I couldn't have put that mm. better myself. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, and um, I think most of us woke up on Monday to possibly one of the most encouraging headlines for some time in the Australian. The news poll showed that the voice was now officially um, uh, losing in in four of six states and not doing too well in the other th two, for that matter. And, and, and that's confirmation, I think, of what you and I probably felt for some time, that, that, that people weren't being uh, direct, you know, they weren't, they weren't being quite as direct as they could with the pollsters because they didn't want to be called racists and all these other words that they hang around, hurl around. And that big, you know, double figures don't know vote was a lot of that you knew with people who just wouldn't want to declare. But it's good to see that, that figure there now uh, to know they've crossed that threshold. Well, and I had a bit of fun with the uh, voice during the week, Nick. I just put up a little video uh, just for the fun of it, asking the question, why aren't bookies taking a bet on the voice referendum? You can mm -hmm. bet on the next federal election, which is in two years' time, but the, the voice referendum will be held this year none of the major bookies are running a book on it. And I speculated in this little Twitter post that I put up that everyone knows, you would know this as, as well as anyone, Nick, if you want anything done in Canberra these days as a lobby group or as a corporation, you first have to prove that you are supporting the voice. And in most cases, this is, you know, this is, takes the form of, of, a, uh, of a, a saccharine, advertising campaign saying, you know, we're right behind it and our, our Indigenous stakeholders will benefit from the voice and yada, yada, yada. Mm. But put yourself in the feet, in the shoes of a betting company. What cunning way could you support the voice? What better way than to not run a book on it? Because if they did, the no result would be unbackably short. And Australians know we're good at betting, mate. Well, yeah. Australians know that polls come and go, mm. but the betting odds don't lie. And, and anyway, so I put that up. Uh, and a few days later, sorry, just, said, sorry, a few days later, I got a call from someone in the betting, in the betting industry. They said, I said, uh, so um, it was all speculation, but how did I go? And he, go, and he said, well, you're not wide of the mark. <laughs> Maybe they could see them putting it up and just reframing the questions. They could say, 
uh, which side will win a, win a majority in the forthcoming referendum? Will it be uh, the virtuous, compassionate people <laughs> answering the gracious call from the Aboriginal people or the mean-spirited racists? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a joke. But Professor Flint uh, uh, sort of alludes to that in that comment. He said, mm. you know, he said, either way, we're, we're screwed. You know, either way, if, it, if it's the no case, then... The people who support it are going to say Australia is a racist country. And if the yes case gets up, then Australia is ungovernable. And Tony Abbott picked this right from the start. He wrote a piece in The Australian. It would have been, I don't know, maybe eight, nine months ago, saying this is a bad idea because either either way it gets up, it's going to divide the country. And that's where we're heading. It's, it's awfully sad, to be honest. It is. It is. Yeah. And I, I did a... A podcast interview this week with Leighton Smith from News Talk ZB in uh, in Auckland. Um, good little podcast actually. We should try and persuade him to come on our network because he'd be a good addition. But you know, he asked me why. What was the one reason why I thought this would fail? And I think I'm detecting that there is one thing that really gets people right here on on the voice question, and that is that we're no longer equal citizens. Yeah. That that that's that's frankly not the deal that migrants like me sign up to when we raise our right hand and swear allegiance to Australia. We, we sign up to a deal by which even before the ink is dry on the citizenship's uh, papers, we have equal status with everybody in this country, whether they, you know, their ancestors go back 60,000 years or two years or whatever. Everybody has the same status. And the, the problem with this is it raises one group purely on the grounds of biology, or assumed biology, to a different level. And that's why people at every level are rejecting it. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's non-negotiable, that mm. equality before the law. But it, it's also, Nick, it's, it's the, that's the Judeo-Christian principle upon which all our civilization is based, I don't, you know, without sounding too philosophical about it. I mean, You're not philosophical, Fred. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. Be- because we inherited that Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, speaking of how uh, woeful we are being governed at the moment, uh, our colleague Alexandra Marshall got a got a very, <laughs> uh, should we say, provocative quote from uh, Frank assessment. Frank <laughs> Frank assessment of his colleagues, Ralph Babbitt, the Victorian uh, UAP senator, said this about some of the Australian politicians. Politics is a dumpster fire. Uh, I'm sure many of your li- of your listeners and your viewers out there might have a very dim view of politics, and I'm going to go right ahead and confirm that dim view. We have people in Parliament right now, as I live and breathe right now, that do not give a damn about Australia. All they care about is protecting that cushy job that they have for, you know, uh, 200 $20,000 a year or whatever it is, protecting that job at all costs. Mm. What do you reckon, Nick? He's not harsh? wrong. He's not wrong. <laughs> He's uh, not wrong no. no, that's my experience of, of politics over, well, probably 30 years or so of following Australian politics and before that British politics. That There is a... Let's take out the exception. There are, there are some people in there who are entirely noble uh, decent people who go in there to make a difference to their country. And I won't pick out names, but I know 
quite a few. Mm. Uh, uh, and but they're often thwarted by those who go in there for more venal ends. You just play politicking, you know, fighting for, uh, you know, promotion, fighting to get on to chair such and such a committee because it, it means an extra thirty thousand in their pay packet. That that's honestly how how some politicians think, and they're always the ones that end up doing not much at all. But I think I think Ralph, well, maybe he's. he's I, th- I wonder whether he should have gone one step further and said that the thing that, that, that a lot of them seem focused on is not the national interest but peculiar sectional interests. And you can single out Labor on that, for instance, on their relationship with the unions. I mean, what's the, f- the, the thing that was top of the Albanese agenda was to tick off everything the unions wanted. You know, yeah, yeah. Including well, extra, <coughs> extra biscuits at the tea break. You know, that was, <laughs> that was the idea. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you spend more time in Canberra than I have, but the... The of the times I've spent down there, the the overarching impression I get of politics is that it is just for professional politicians. You know, they're all former staffers, um, and they've had to you know knife and claw their way to the top. There's there's precious few people who have real life experience in Canberra. I, I, it, it's, it was a fatal flaw to put Canberra where it is, to put our House of Parliament in Canberra. Waste of a good sheep paddock. On that. Well, <laughs> that's right. And, yeah. But the, yeah, you're right, Fred, and there is this is a perennial problem and I don't quite know how you resolve it but because you do need, you've got to learn the game of politics in, insofar as you've got to learn how Parliament works and the public service works and, and how you deal with the public service. There's a certain amount of expertise and skill you need to learn. But I think we're at the point now where when you get often really good qualified people go into politics in later life after they've done something very different, they find it very hard to make an impact in 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 Parliament because they're constantly being undermined by the professionals who've yeah. been there since they were 16. But the, the thing is, Nick, that this, this impression of politics is widespread. You know, everyone thinks now that we are ruled by a... Uh, ruled, not governed, um, by a, a kind of self-selecting elite and we are increasingly a country with a uni party, which is, you know, as a case in point, Chris Minns saying Gladys was was excellent. I mean, they're meant to be opposing each other. But here's an opportunity for the Liberal Party. So yeah. th- why, I mean, Tony, again, I, you know, I'm always quoting Tony Abbott. He's such a such a, uh, a clear thinker on subjects like this. But he had a piece in the Oz not long ago saying, you know, the Liberal Party can't be a broad church anymore. I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him mm. and I might mm. be doing him an injustice. But the, the idea of a broad church is uh, a little too loose. You really do need to adhere to certain principles if you want to be a member of the of the uh, of the Liberal Party, and too many of them are abandoning them. I mean, you may have read um, Matthew Bark's piece in the Age just last week. Mystifying. It, I mean, the blokes the, are. How can you, how can you say you've got? Uh, anyway, no, what's your opinion? Of, oh, you're yeah. right. We're doing that's something in my other job. I'm doing a bit of work on this on values, but I'm I bought you you quote Tony Abbott. I quote D. H. Lawrence, if I may. <laughs> from his novel Kangaroo in 1923. I often go back to this. So D.H. Lawrence, of course, a British novelist, visited Australia shortly after World War I, and 
his observations come up in this novel. And I always go back to this um, about Australia. He says, amazing how little fuss and bother there was. Nobody seemed to bother. There was no policeman, not authority. The whole thing went by itself, loose and easy, without any bossing. No authority, no superior class, hardly any boss, and everything rolled along as easily as a river to, to all appearances. Now, that's the Australia that attracted me. Yeah. But you'd hardly say that's a true description of the place now, do you? No bosses. And, and he goes on to talk about how politicians uh, serve. There's The government's not there to rule. It's there to serve. Well, I wish that was true. I mean, that should be the ideal, but we're far from it these that's days. That's a wonderful description of Australia. And it's it's the description that I would... Um, that, that I, I wished. It's it's like the ideal Australia. You know? It is, and it, there's a. I, th- I, I think uh, my minister is right. He, he describes getting into a taxi and being surprised about riding in the front with the driver, which is very used to be a very Australian thing. It was just what you did to pay respect to the driver and have a chat to them and treat them as an equal. You're not your servant or whatever. But I fear that's disappeared after COVID. I don't know. Now I sit in the front of a taxi and I get some strange looks. People feel a bit uncomfortable about it. Yeah, it is weird. I actually made that comment in an Uber the other day, you know, mm. since the introductions of Uber and, and during COVID, of course, um, the, the custom has emerged that naturally you get in the back seat. And I jumped in the front seat the other day and it, and it, it, was, it was like, uh, you know, breaking an unspoken rule. <laughs> you remember our late colleague, David Nason from the Australian yes. died yeah, yeah. far too young because Nace was, a, Nace was a guy from the Territory, from Darwin. And when they made him New York correspondent, you remember he, he, um, he was a sort of Crocodile Dundee figure in yeah, New yeah. York, you know, and uh, he insisted on riding in the front of New York taxis. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd get drivers who'd pull a gun on him, say, what are you doing, buddy? Get the back. Get the back. <laughs> True um, story. During COVID, you know, when Australia became uh, famous, unfortunately, for being such an all, uh, uh, its, um, its nascent authoritarianism uh, just became its most prominent characteristic. And uh, that Clive James quote was was just bandied about almost uh, by the day around the world, you know, saying um, it, um, it, it's not that Australians are descendants of con- uh, half Australians are defen- descendants of convicts, it's that half of them are <laughs> descendants of prison guards. And it's it's actually worse than that, Nick, because when convicts were emancipated and if they didn't want to get some land, you know, on the other side of the Blue Mountains and raise sheep or grow some wheat. Well, there weren't many other jobs going. I mean, you could probably try to start a brewery, in which case you'd wind up making a million bucks. But no, I knew that at the time. But the other, the, one of the few other jobs going was as police. So, you know, th- this sort of blurring of the lines between authority and, and the ordinary people in Australia and our disrespect for authority is not just that we emerged from a penal colony, but half of the convicts wound up being cops. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I think we all suffered that. All those sensitive ones like you and me suffered that feeling during COVID. Oh, no, the Australian people are much more compliant than we thought they were. They'll just listen. The rules are issued and they'll just do it. Yeah, but and I they'll think dob that, in their neighbours. Yeah, but that's why I was so pleased by the... Napoleon poll on Monday showing the COVID, the uh, sorry, the voice campaign is is not going to succeed. And 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 despite the fact that all the sporting codes, the government, BHP, Rio, Qantas, 
you know, have been saying, oh, you've got to vote for the voice, otherwise you're a racist pig. They're saying, tell you what, no. So I think that Larrikin, you know, don't trust anybody yeah. until you've worked it out for yourself kind of yeah. spirit. Yeah. Is, still, is still there. Yeah, 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 good point, good point. Shall we move on to your little grab now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I spoke to Richard Alston. He's just written a, a chapter on freedom of speech in, in a new book uh, looking at exactly what you said, liberal principles and getting the Liberal Party basically getting its its stuff together again. Uh, it's a very good chapter but because David uh, uh, Richard being a former communications minister under the Howard government when he had... Uh, charge of the arts, but also of the ABC. I'd asked, I thought I'd ask him about the ABC, how he felt they were going. Is there really a role for the national broadcaster? Well, if that behaved itself, yes, I think there probably still is. I mean, a lot of people like it simply because it doesn't have any ad- advertisements on it. But the problem is that the inmates control the asylum. I, I suspect that senior management wouldn't tolerate most, most of this stuff unless they were confronted by a, a unanimity of opposing thought from some of their so-called star performers. Uh, but the, to, to work for the ABC is a very privileged position and they're usually recruited from inner you know, Sydney or inner you know, Melbourne uh, University, probably being taught about media studies, which has nothing to do with real media. Uh, and as a result, it's the employees who determine that they'll persist with all this stuff. I mean, their agenda, whether it's climate change, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's immigration, it's all heavily left of centre and they take no responsibility for anything. I mean, I'm reminded of a cartoon that our late great friend Bill Leake did at the time when Richard was communications minister <laughs> and he and all the rest of the, the front bench of the... Uh, of the coalition federal government and uh, a few others like um, Jeff Kennett and a few other prominent liberals were all lined up and uh, they're all flipping the bird at the reader saying, it's our ABC. (laughs) But Richard, I have to say, I mean, and I thought that was very funny at the time, but I, I have to say Richard has been absolutely vindicated. He was vilified back in the day as communications minister for trying to straighten out the ABC. And obviously he saw the writing on the wall. He saw the signs of what it was going to develop into if it was left to its own devices. Well, it's been left to its own devices and now it's just an absolute uh, wreck of a place being run. Well, Richard says elsewhere in that, that the um, that the inmates have taken over the asylum. Yeah, I, me- I remember him as communications minister. I was uh, bureau chief for News Limited. Uh, in Canberra at the time and I remember him as, as just quite a sort of a pugilist I mean he was one of those tough ministers who just front up to a press conference and you and you would take no nonsense and he, he was obviously the man Howard put in in place to tame the ABC but but back then of course things were very different you know um the, the they used to yeah, the, the lips used to say well uh, it's our enemy talking to our friends knowing that there would be lots of Liberal supporters and potential Liberal supporters watching 7.30 report that night, you know, Kerry O'Brien, who was ever on it. And and so they had to treat it with certain kid gloves. Now I think the tables are changed. I mean, I don't think many Liberal supporters bother with the ABC, probably some of the older uh, 
read viewers out of habit, but I mean, let's well, face it. You... Richard, yeah, the best thing Richard can say about it is it's got no ads. <laughs> <laughs> we should also point out, Nick, that um, that uh, I think the chairman at that time was Morris Newman, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, well, it might have been, I can't remember what order, but Morris, certainly during the Howard years, was yeah, chairman and, yeah. and Morris will tell you. now happens to be... Uh, the chair of ADH. Yeah, yeah. He's not uh, He's not facing the same problems he did we, back then. We, we, we treated with exactly the same disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> Morris, no, if you're listening, Morris. that was no, Nick. No, no, we don't, Morris. We treat you with the greatest respect. Indeed. But I, I think that was his, he was terribly frustrated, as he'll tell you, and has written on a number of occasions during that period. But um, Well, he's an incredibly eloquent writer and a clear thinker. Yeah, and, and Richard, I don't know whether Richard's changed or I've changed, but I used to think him as a sort of hardline right winger. I now think about him as a bit of a lefty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have changed, Nick. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so shall we move on to our last grab for the yeah. day? All right. So, when he died from a heart condition in Thailand in March last year, the media was all over it. The Sydney Morning Herald covered it live as the story developed on the day, calling it a sad day for Australian sport and posted pieces by its best writers who, quote, tried to make sense of the news and shared their memories and insights about the champion spinner. The Australian dived into his Instagram account and said his final post, saying goodnight from Koh Samui, was, quote, eerie. Even the ABC digressed from its usual fodder of viral and environmental Armageddon to give Warney's passing a run. Well, as you worked out from the last uh, last few words of that, uh, that that grab, that was about the death of Shane Warne from a heart attack in Thailand in March last year, which, as I explained on my show on Monday night, was covered in the most comprehensive way mm. you could imagine. Mm. And uh, it, not just in Australia. I mean, even the New York Times gave it huge prominence and, of course, the Times in London and the Telegraph and so on. And this was followed up instantly by the political, by politicians jumping on board. So uh, Martin Pakula, the, who was the, I think he was the sports minister in Victoria at the time, without even consulting the, the people of Victoria, spoke to Warren's family, spoke to the trustees of the MCG and immediately within, I think it was within 24 hours of Warren dying, said the Great Southern Stand which had at the MCG, which has been known as the Great Southern Stand for 30 years, would uh, very soon be renamed the Shane Warren Stand. Now, uh, and then, of course, Dan Andrews, who's, uh, who's not exactly known. He's not known for his love of infrastructure projects, but not really a sports <laughs> fan, immediately announced that he, there would be a state funeral for Warney. And uh, that, it wound up costing $1.6 million. It was one of the most uh, expensive state funerals um, in, in Australia. So... You know, I mean, this, this is a fair reflection of the affection we had for Warney. Warney was one of us, you know. He was flawed, mm. and uh, he, but he, his, uh, his ability with a cricket ball, the best spin bowler in history, the, probably the best bowler in history. I don't think anyone took more wickets than he did. We loved him for it. We love our sport, and uh, that's just what we do as Australians. But, Nick, this... I uh, couldn't believe this. Asim Malhotra, the world-renowned cardiologist, came to Australia on quite a well, 
quite quite a quite a spectacular tour of Australia talking about um, the link between heart conditions and the vaccines. Yeah. Came out and said that it was probably the COVID vaccine that killed him. And as I said on my show on Monday, the response from the media was crickets, and I wasn't referring to reruns of Warney's <laughs> finest moments. What did you think of it, Nick? Yeah, I think that's well. It, I, I say first, it's very hard to talk about this in the context of individuals, right? The um, but I think it is clear. Uh, even anecdotally from my experience, your experience and, and virtually everybody I met that, that we just seem to be uh, surrounded by tragedies like Shane Warne's death. Um, Simon Crean earlier this week, for instance, I mean, he was in his 70s, not a bad innings, but he was a very fit man, you know. It, John... Um, and that was a heart condition too, wasn't he? He died of a heart attack, wasn't it? Yes, he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah he did it, uh, after exercising, mm. right? So after his, doing his morning uh, walk or run or whatever it was, uh, and, and it is hard, and you don't want to, you don't, you know, you, at the time of a death, you don't want to pile on any any more pressure on on relatives grieving. Mm. So that is difficult. But I think you know the refusal of the press to to look at this uh, phenomena, and it is a phenomena. And then even if you get beyond the anecdotal dress to look at the excess mortality rate, to look at the jump in the number of uh, cardiac um, deaths uh, and a whole range of other things, to look at the declining birth rate, you know, which um, uh, may, may in some way be related to the vaccine. And the sudden increase in stillbirths? Yeah. And look, I'm, I'm not qualified to say any of these things are true. But I just think if what I don't get is why curious journalists and editors don't look at this dramatic fall in in the in the birth rate, for instance, or the dramatic increase in excess deaths after we've all been vaccinated, right? There's no in Australia at least, there's no noticeable uh, movement in excess deaths uh, during COVID before vaccination. And actually say, what the heck is going on? Let's go and have a look. Oh, there might be some completely different explanation. Indeed. Well, the, 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 that, in which case, show us the statistics because yeah. you can find the statistics to back up if it's you know if it's something some other factor at play that you and I are too stupid to have thought about. Show us the stats that show we're wrong. But I think it's the fact that people like you know my wife Rebecca Weiss are writing in the Spectator and a, and a handful of brave other people yourself. Uh, Chris Kenny, I think I'd have to single out on Sky and a few others, have been prepared to go tackle this and there's been no rebuttal. Mm. That's always the... the yeah, well, I think Rebecca yeah. deserves um, particular mention there because I think she, um, you know, her, her output was, was thorough, but she led the investigation. I mean, she was ahead of the pack in exposing all this stuff. The irony is that we were fed the most sort of uh, deep details about infection rates and hospitalizations and deaths and so on as that could be supposedly attributed to the virus. But now that there is uh, possible connections between the vaccines and deaths, you know, everyone's whistling Dixie. It's the, um, it, it exposes the inconsistencies that uh, from and it's probably what Ralph Babbitt was talking about when he said, you know, some people just don't care about the country. Some politicians don't care about the country. Well, I think we uh, politically we probably have to single out uh, Jared Rennick 
the uh, Queensland LNP senator, he's been absolutely tireless on this matter right from the start. I spoke to him probably eight months ago and it, just, you know, as an aside, I said, how much, how much of your time is spent dealing with adverse reactions to the vaccines? And if I remember rightly, he said it was about 80% of his time. He had a, a database of people who were just you know, um, suffering the most uh, just awful consequences, if not grieving for a lost loved one. So, yeah, I mean, you and I grew up in a different media, Nick. We did. I've said it, I've said it a few times. The media that we joined all those years ago was based on the model, read our newspaper or watch our TV news and we will speak truth to power on your behalf. And the media just doesn't do that anymore. That's why you and I are now at ADH. Yeah, and we, we had to be curious because with the best will in the world, you know, the stories don't exactly land on your desk. So you have to look at something and say, that doesn't quite seem right, and go out and look at it. And that's why I, I it just, well, of course, the whole media... Uh, Silence and 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 just you know lack of courage during the COVID thing worried me again with 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 some far too few exceptions and it's worrying me now and I think the true is same is true as politics and I think we should of course mention Senator Alex Antic who's been been um, indeed brave, yep. very brave he, spent he was two locked years up for in, two, two years in prison or yeah. some <laughs> two weeks. four star hotel yeah, yeah. in Adelaide for his yeah. sins yeah so well actually um, he th- this is this this is the most frightening one of the most frightening revelations in the past few months he had to uh, find out he had to apply through freedom of information about censorship that um, had been applied by, I think it was the Federal Department of Health, I might be wrong, on uh, Facebook and social media posts by ordinary Australians that went against the official narrative about the vaccines. Now, if you step back and look at it, Nick, that is an elected representative of the Australian government had to use freedom of information to find out what the government was up to, what a government department was up to. That's frightening. I, um, I, I won't. I won't cut you off if you've got another point. But I'm just looking at. Uh, I've just jumped onto Instagram. Uh, sorry, onto Twitter, and uh, we should finish on a positive note. Mm. And I'm now looking at footage from France. France is. I'm actually going to be in France in December, and I'm starting to wonder whether I should go or not because there was the. Uh, the cops killed a 17-year-old kid, criminal. Mm. Uh, they call them migrants. Um, read into that what you will. But um, there, are, I'm now looking at footage of, of guys just shooting what looked like Kalashnikovs into the air. And uh, the, the caption on, the, on, this, um, on this video is France has fallen. And the, in, in many ways it has. I mean, France has been – there's been riots in France – since the Gilets Jaunes, uh, what was that, two, three years ago? Uh, well, you go back well, sorry, to the since French the Revolution. <laughs> but, but this time they mean it. And this yeah. time they've got guns. It's not just guillotines. Uh, I, interestingly, I, I'm, I'm just uh, reading Simon Sharma's uh, brilliant cultural history of the French Revolution at the moment called Citizens. And, and what you pick up in there is what we're seeing now is this is the way the French just do things, you know, and I think for a lot of reasons we come from a British culture which 
if, if we if there's something wrong, our first reaction is not to go out and burn a few cars. You know? <laughs> Indeed, we, yes. we find other channels to do that. But I think it's it. I I, I have no more knowledge than what I read in. In in the in the news reports, but it I, yeah, it certainly looks a very volatile place. Right well, now. if there's a, if there is a positive closing note for for this uh, uh, this inaugural uh, um, and and somewhat negative uh, um, edition of our podcast, it is that at least we don't live in France. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. We don't. Well, look, uh, and 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 an addendum to that. At least the British got here first before oh, the French. Yeah. <laughs> Only by exactly. a matter of days, exactly. but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, we'd all be wishing uh, bon voyage. But uh, look, thank you, Fred. I think this has been good. We, we'll we'll give it another whirl next week, uh, Jack permitting, the yep. boss here. And uh, all just remains for us to say, please, you can email us both on uh, nickcater at adh.tv or... Uh, Fred.paul at adh.media. Maybe that's what mine should have been. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be in the it'll be in the caption beneath. It. Uh, thank you to Charlie for keeping our our sparkling words crisp on the microphones and for playing in the uh, the clips despite our disorganisation. And most of all, thank you for listening. See you next week. <laughs>